Drilling fluids touch just about everything in the drilling process. We're here to deconstruct the drilling process and drilling fluid concepts to provide a deeper understanding of our industry. In each episode, we'll share information, talk to interesting people, and maybe share a few stories along the way. Welcome to The Flow Line, a production of AES Drilling Fluids, brought to you by Matt Offenbacher and Justin Gautier. And we're back. Welcome to another episode of The Flow Line. Matt, we're in our wonderful studio here. How's everything in your world going? It's the week of opening day, so it's going pretty well. Wait, what? Baseball's coming back. What? Yeah, Thursday. That's opening day for It's opening day, yeah. Where have I been? I don't know. Not Not spending obscene amounts of money on tickets. That's (laughs) Clearly that's the case. (laughs) And not spending obscenely amounts of money on the Final Four, which Houston's not in it, so I just found that out this morning. (laughs) Well, it was a bummer for the Cougars, and then, you know, I went to Texas, and so it was like, oh, maybe, and then they just like, they gave you the heartbreak of clearly being in the lead and looking like they had it and then just imploding and... Yes, I'll go there. Blame the referees some. <laughs> okay. So uh, just a whole package of disappointment on the basketball front. That's too bad. I was actually, so I was at a customer's office this morning and the completions engineer, he was the first one in to come into the kitchen and says, hey, you know, how's it going? Blah, blah. And he just looked like just deflated and I couldn't figure out why. I'm like, well, yeah, I know oil's, you know, just the high 60s isn't good for anybody, but like what else is going on? And he's like, do you watch basketball? I'm like, well, I haven't watched in a while and. I don't really have a streaming service that offers it. You know, we're still on that pandemic mode where we're not paying for streaming services and we're piggybacking off of people. Anyway, mm-hmm. I digress on that. But he then proceeded to tell me about Texas and he went to Texas. And yeah, he kind of gave me the rundown and they were up by 12, 10 minutes left and just blew it. And mm-hmm. he lost a little bit of money. And, mm-hmm. You know, it's just, I was like, okay, and how's that well you're fracking now? <laughs> you know, it was, yeah, like, he didn't want to talk about it, but yeah. It is what it is. Yeah. But baseball, obviously, is coming up, and opening day is always a big deal. Are you yeah. going? I'm assuming. Yeah. yeah. Right? That's where all the money went. Yeah. <laughs> That's why Matt's coming in here. And- That's probably why I need to cancel some streaming services. <laughs> Who are they playing? The White Sox. Okay. How's this looking? I mean, it's opening day, right? It's just exciting, but they're going to unveil the banner from last year. The, oh. So this, the first couple of games are sort of a celebration of the World Series victory. Yeah. So, like... There's all of that, and so just the I think the energy will be worth it. Yep. And then you know I'll go to many more games, hopefully. Yeah. No, that's cool. Coming off the World Series, I'm sure there'll still be some good buzz around the stadium. So cool. Well, that's exciting. Well, you know, let's kick things into gear here, Matt. I'm sure you know. Again, I mentioned it just a minute ago. You know, oil's been hovering around that seventy dollar mark. We've dipped into this, you know, high sixties. Gas is, you know, kind of slipping and sliding. So naturally, it's like you know we see things like. Again, to preface this, we're going to talk a little bit about supply chain. And I think, you know, and that's why I opened up with oil and gas prices. And it offers a little bit of, you know, hope for some folks. It's like, oh, yeah, maybe inflation's starting to tame, you know, and so on and so forth. And something that stuff that's, read, you know, mostly talked about on the supply chain side, especially on the drilling front, you're looking at, you know, steel prices. You look at casing and you look at pipe and the whole whole country tubular goods side of things. And and so if, if you were to just sit back and not have a deep dive understanding of, of the entire supply chain across every drilling service sector and everything else, you'd think, oh, maybe there's some, you know, things are looking good for us here. And and so I think it's important to talk about kind of what that looks like in our world, just to give a little bit of color and, you know, just do some more educating like we like yeah. to do. What do you think? I love it. I mean, yeah. 
conversation that needs to be had for sure. Perfect, perfect. Well, again, talk. Let's talk about drill pipe. That's one that's often talked about. You know, that shot up just like many did, Matt. But what can you sort of share on where that was relative to where it is today? Because I think there's been some relief on the steel side of things. Yeah, well, there's relief and less worse, right? So drill pipe shot up about ninety percent, I think. You know, mm. during the pandemic, which of course. For a while there, it wasn't a big deal because you were just using everybody else's because all the rigs were laid down. Then right. when everybody got back to work, it skyrocketed, right? And everybody needed the same pipe and couldn't get it. And But it was an easy narrative to understand because it was like, okay, China is still in lockdowns. A lot of the steel comes from there. Like, you could see how all of that sort of comes together and say, okay, like, you know, operators say, well, I'm mad, but I get it. Right. And we're all sort of underneath the same confines. And so... We've started to see some relief, and I think a lot of, I mean, look, out of all the other oil field service guys may, may come after me for saying this, but I think on the equipment side where you spend some money to build a thing, mm-hmm. and that thing has a service life that goes on for a little while. So, like, you have this big rush, and then things sort of settle in. Yeah. I think a lot of the equipment side of stuff has found some relief. Not saying it's 2020 prices or whatever, but- right less worse than what everybody had been experiencing. And so like that's sort of how the environment has changed, but it's created sort of expectations on our end. It's like, okay, well, so when are mud chemicals coming down? Right? Like, yeah, no. And and there's, again, it's not a one size fits all approach, right? Like it's not directly related when if oil goes up, everything goes up. When oil is down, everyone down. It's not this like direct correlation, which, you know, in the past, I think you could, based off my experience, you could kind of see it ebb and flow and there was maybe a little bit of lag but for the most part like when oil was up things were kind of up and when things came down you expected some things to draw down and you could somewhat get a good grasp of where things were heading but i mean geez there's been a lot of things that have happened since the pandemic that has kind of scrum like kind of skewed the fundamentals on how just the entire you know the way service companies costs are relative to oil prices so i think it's important to note that we don't follow the same i guess principles as say drill pipe or steel it's a, it's a bit of a different ball game right and i think you know to tie into what you're saying there were elements of this in the past i rec- you know i remember seeing this where it's like look you know the price of oil's up and so like energy input costs are up but because so like to make steel it takes more energy that does raise costs and that was like very clear mm-hmm. and then you would also have you know Some of those hydrocarbons were also feedstock for oil field chemicals. And so they would go up with the price of crude and then you'd get relief when you'd see them both go down like that. There were some of those correlations, if you will, that we saw. We said, well, look, natural gas is cheap. I like, why isn't everything getting cheaper or some of those things? And the pandemic has done a great job of not only showing all of our supply chain weaknesses all at the same time, Mm -hmm. but sort of exaggerating or emphasizing some things that we're sort of playing in the background when you talk about, I mean, you name it, but just the little things that didn't seem to seem like little things until they all sort of flared up at once. Mm-hmm. And the problem is, like, when they flare up, they don't really go away. You have to manage them. Right. And this is where, you know, shout out to our procurement department. I mean, we've seen a lot of people run out of stuff on rigs, let's face it. And AES has been very fortunate because the people we have – the relationships we have with our customers and the communication we've been able to establish. Yeah. We've been able to find it. And yeah, the pricing is not where we would like it to be, but we're able to get it. Yeah. And we're able to kind of be reasonable and manage expectations with that. Right. And aside from, you know, like we're talking about price and all the rest of it, but just to be able to 
confidently have supply of product is huge, especially when drilling operations are 24-7, right? No one wants to sit there and wait for product because supply chain scrambling to try and find it somewhere. I think the fact that we can secure products straight right from raw materials out through distribution, that whole vertical integration, you know, the way we're built gives us a, a huge advantage. And, you know, for someone like myself in the account management space, it's nice to confidently tell customers, like, we've got a lot of product and we're not going to run out. Yeah. And I mean, let's throw shade at competitors for, for a second while we're <laughs> at it. You know, some of them clearly are, you know, big enough that they could have acquired these things by applying the correct resources. And they either chose not to because they didn't like the overhead issue or they didn't make the effort. And sometimes that gave us opportunities for work. But all that being said, we want our account managers, they might not enjoy the conversations about what, you know, what it may cost or, or how we're going to, you know, but they can have plenty of conversations about how we're going to create value because someone can charge less than a product, but if they don't have it, they can't sell it. Right. <laughs> no, and you can't drill. Yeah, so. yeah, exactly. Right. And so, well, why don't we zoom in just a little bit and kind of unpack the whole chemical world, if you will. When it comes to different products, a lot of the products have raw materials that are sourced from just completely different places in the world that are used for many different applications. Can you speak a little bit on the sources side? Yeah. And I think, you know, in the future, we may want to unpack this in greater depth, like, you know, going by certain types of products. But Think about it, you know, lime is going to be affected by const the construction industry. So when you're in the middle of the pandemic and everybody wants to build a new house or add on to theirs, that's like, we need it too. <laughs> but it's, guess what? People are building homes are willing to spend more than us. They're, you know, we're, we're bidding against that. But then I got to go to emulsifiers. I've got to go, you know, which could come from a number of different streams, but some of that stuff is tied to crude tall oils, which are, you know, effectively byproducts from paper mills. You could have even some like polymer, you know, pack coming from cotton linters where it's like, okay, well, how are cotton crops doing? You know, wetting agents that may be refined from soybeans. Mm -hmm. And so now all of a sudden, you know, you're looking at all of the feedstock that goes into some of these things you know, calcium chloride was kind of a mess recently yeah. and it was what winter weather. And guess what? The departments of transportation get dibs on the de-icing salt because those contracts are huge. Yeah. And so we got squeezed there and people got squeezed on. I think there was like a hydrochloric acid shortage and that's used to help make calcium chloride. So all this stuff sort of falls together. And now, you know, something that seems really readily available and relatively inexpensive becomes a problem mm -hmm. and it may get better but better in this day and age always seems to be less worse. Yeah. Like I'm still, I'm still working with a bunch of different suppliers, doing a lot of different things. So every single one of those different things has a story. And unlike your, you know, your pipe salesperson who comes in and says, look at the cost of steel, look at the cost of, you know, this, and now you understand why my pipe costs more. Yeah. We have to come in and say, look at these 60 different products. And yeah. I can tell you 35 different stories and I'm not lying to you, but I think I lost you after about one, you know? <laughs> yeah. Well, it's tough too, right? Like, and to your point, and a lot of what we provide has a commercial name, right? So a lot mm -hmm. of, it, it's hard if say someone wanted to just, you know, do their own due diligence and do their own research. It's oftentimes tough to kind of go sort of more upstream and to see why costs are being changed 
based off a lot of these market fundamentals, whether it's sourcing, whether it's energy inputs, whether it's, you know, just supply and demand, whether it's, you know, there, there's so many moving parts, I guess is what I'm trying to say, where it's difficult for someone to just, unless you understand the business to like really deep dive in it and then sort of build a case as, oh, oh, that makes sense. But like something like pipe or maybe direction or even personnel, like there's a lot of readily available data that you can kind of sort of synthesize and get a good grasp on it. So I guess I say that to say is like, that's kind of why this sort of, you know, idea popped up today was like, I think it's a good time to just continuously educate folks on the supply chain side because it's so critical to, you know, ultimately wall costs, right? And, and, you know, kind of mentioned it, but Matt, how do shifting markets sort of come into play with with all this as well? I mean, some of it lately has been that sort of, I got to have it. I got to have it now. So a great, another one, soda ash. Like, you know, some of our most basic products, guess what? You need soda ash to make glass. You know, all those cars that everybody's trying to make? Some of these companies, I mean, you can Google this stuff, but like, I'm pretty sure that like Volkswagen tried to order a year's supply of windshields, Mm. like all at once because they were so hard to get. They're like, just get me everything. And you saw that even beer brewers were having trouble getting glass bottles. Mm. And so it's like, well, we don't need glass, but if everybody's making all the glass they can, they're using a lot more soda ash than usual. So there's a spike in the market. So which Um, is why you should recycle your beer bottles. Yes. (laughs) Which, you know, the well actually in me. So my wife is very big on recycling of all kinds. Well, coming from Canada, we're big on that too. But my whole thing is like, as an engineer, I'm like, no, like aluminum, you know, what it takes to, aluminum is like a very good thing to recycle because of the amount of energy it takes to mine the ore and all all that kind of thing. Yeah. Whereas glass, you're effectively, to recycle glass, if you're not reusing it, you're melting it and making a new bottle. Which is pretty energy intensive. (laughs) Which is about the same energy intensity as taking sand and melting it and making a new bottle. Right. And so what is the footprint of getting it sorted and separated and bringing it back and all that. Like there's a lot of overhead, mm-hmm. you know, from an environmental footprint perspective Yeah, to get it back to the recycler when it may just be like, go to the sand mine and make another one. <laughs> um, so a- anyways, but yeah. like stuff like that, you know, creates these surges in demand and then, you know, shifting markets. So one thing I think that we're seeing a ton of is this like, Okay, we're just going to call it out. The Europeans are creating a mess in a number of ways. So one thing they're doing, you know, they're renewable mandates. Mm-hmm. A lot of them isn't actually being met through like wind. So one thing that qualifies for renewable mandates is burning wood. Mm. So they're buying up a bunch of wood pellets from us here in the States and sh- putting them on a boat, <laughs> shipping across and setting them on fire. <laughs> and lo and behold, it turns out if you actually do the math, This is not a carbon reduction exercise because the trees that you do this with aren't around long enough to actually act as an effective carbon sink. So that cycle, you know, you need a certain number of years for the tree to be growing to do all that, and they don't do that. But the other thing is they have these mandates for biofuels that some of them explicitly state that they can't displace a food supply. But if you read anything about, you know, the energy density concepts, the worst possible thing you could do is grow something like a grass or a whatever, all the fertilizer, all of the land use, all of that, and then turn it into, you know, ethanol, for example, or, or what have you as a biofuel. Yeah. Because it's an obscene amount of land and you start displacing the food supply. So 
they're generally going after a lot of feedstocks that don't qualify with a lot of subsidies involved. And they used to go into chemicals, and now they're going into these biofuels, which would make sense except for they're running up the price of these chemicals, and now everybody who's in that chemical space is looking elsewhere for substitutes, Mm -hmm. many of them coming from hydrocarbons. So while they can say that they've lowered the carbon intensity, they've done nothing. All they've done is shifted demand around yeah. because all the it's a scarce supply and it's all got to come from somewhere. So the biofuel subsidies are kind of wreaking havoc on some typical chemical streams, making a mess. And there's other places that aren't as regulated that are going to go after the food supply as biofuels. Mm. So seed oils, for sure, palm oil, all that stuff, I think is – there was an article, I think in Bloomberg mm. very recently, just talking about how seed oils and food oils – are going to become, you know, a hot topic because people need them for caloric intake to survive. Right. And they also meet these mandates, yep. many of these mandates. So all of this has shifted the market around in a way that post-pandemic doesn't bring us back to where we were. Right. And so we are still in that sort of adjustment where we haven't found level footing. And I don't know if we will, because these net zero and some of these other things, they these mandates are like ratcheting in, you know, 2035, 2050. Yeah. And everybody's made it law with no actual like thought about the unintended consequences and how they'll be executed. Yeah. No. And it's just constantly evolving and unfolding. Right. And so we're having to, again, it's tough because we've had to be relatively reactive in some cases. And, you know, most of what we do well is especially on the, you know, supply chain side of it is being proactive and setting ourselves up to sort of understanding okay here's what the next six months looks like like i think we got a good idea but then when all this stuff starts happening i mean and then in addition to that we haven't even started talking about the whole geopolitical challenges that we face matt how does that plug into this whole system i mean it's a little bit of everywhere but let's go ahead and uh, let's just use ukraine because it's the most obvious and the most apparent right you know so it's not just ukraine it's the sanctions on russia first right so there are certain things that you just can't get from Russia anymore or is very restricted or you've got to use some kind of end around. And even if Russia is probably producing more oil or as much oil, like it really hasn't declined that much because they're selling it to countries that aren't involved in the sanctions like India or Mm -hmm. China, or they're selling their diesel, they're getting for cheap and then it's being sold back to Europe at normal prices, ironically enough. But it's not just that, it's that whole shift. So it's okay They used to sell that directly to the Europeans, but now it's got to go to India first. Now it goes through India, and now only the refined products go to Europe, whereas before Russia would send them crude oil or what have you, it would get refined in Europe and then become these products. But that shift in the market cycle is it's more expensive, right? We've added steps. The other thing is that, once again, that like rebalancing, even with vessels, so boats that used to have typical circuits where they would deliver products yeah. had to all move around. And a bunch of these vessels are sort of going off the radar to avoid sanctions and stuff like that. So when you kind of turn off your transponder and that sort of thing, you tend to not be in the you know regular commercial markets anymore. Yeah, You're probably sticking to a route between two sanctioned countries or between countries that don't care about sanctions. <laughs> so all of this tension, let alone, you know, you hear the stories of negotiating to get crops out of Ukraine, some of these other, you know, ports being blocked, all that. Yeah. Just the sheer change in who people will do business with and at what price creates pressure on everybody. 
Yeah. It's really a butterfly effect, and it's crazy to see some of these narratives play out. Yeah, it is. And it's just been, again, it's been wild. And and so, you know, what we're talking about too is obviously a lot of it, you know, being on the supply side. But w- when we look at the demand side of the equation, especially in places like in developing countries, Matt, again, how does, you know, that also sort of play into this whole thing? Because, you know, again, it's, there's a lot of developing countries that are demanding a lot of, whether it be energy or materials or, you know, whatever, especially if we've come out of the pandemic, Matt. I mean, can you add any color on that uh, side of things? Yeah, I mean, it, it may sound exceedingly simple, but these developing countries want the prosperity we have. And mm-hmm. so affordable energy is a key part of that. But they also have this built-in demand where they're looking for things that supply hasn't necessarily gone up for, but you're seeing the demand drive it. Think about yeah. how many people in the world want to have a cell phone. Think about how many of the, like, these just pure raw materials, you know? Yeah. And I think these developing countries, I mean, even the way they require those raw materials with respect to, you know, China's a great example because it's so huge that the scale is there, but like their demand for coal, you know, they want more coal than any, the rest of the world combined. And it's driving coal prices, but it's also driving, you know, what it costs. If, if I really want coal that I'm willing to load up a boat full of coal, well, guess what? We transport bayrite ore on the same type of boats, but if they're all being shipped, if they're all cycling over between Australia and China, they might not be available as much for transporting bayrite. And China's development in particular is they need more energy. They used to export about 80% or 80% of US bayrite usage was from was bayrite ore from China. Right. And now it's way, way less because they've looked at themselves domestically. And something you've talked about is as countries advance and develop, people tend to demand more restrictions on the environment and preservation. And, and you see China sort of in, you know, saying the same thing where they've closed some mines, they've restricted, you know, places where water usage was wasteful, they've restricted that. And so some of the Bayrite, as far as we know, is going to stay in the ground. Yeah. So just more and more knock on effects when countries develop, there tend to be more restrictions environmentally. Those can be, those aren't all bad. They're just factors. Right. So between just needing more and also supply of, oh, wait, you know, I can't just go anywhere now because it costs just as much to get it from here as it does here. Yeah. Prices go up, right? Yeah, no, naturally. And one thing too, Matt, that we haven't sort of, we've touched on it a little bit, but it was sort of, I was thinking about as you were talking is a lot of the just manufacturing and production capacity was also taken offline during the invasion, right? Like, and then especially when natural gas prices went up, a lot of the chemical manufacturing plants actually ended up either shutting down or even, you know, switching, you know, fuels to offset the high prices. Mm -hmm. But by that, and correct me if I'm wrong, I'm not an expert in this by any means, but didn't a lot of the capacity or like manufacturing come domestically or some of it, which anything here manufactures typically higher prices? I mean, wasn't that happening too at the same time? Yeah. So it's wild, but we have a number of vendors who have said, Hey, we have a reactor unit that is leaving Germany on a boat. And they're like, it's not going back. Like you don't make this decision unless you have no prospects that you will be able to get the, you know, cheap natural gas you had access to or that sort of thing. Right. You know, and I know one, you know, that's public and much discussed is BASF in Germany has this huge, it was almost like a city of manufacturing, relying heavily on natural gas for energy and for feedstock. And their CEOs publicly commented about like, it's kind of over. We're going to move this stuff elsewhere. 
which is crazy if you consider the sheer scale of this, the history, mm -hmm. everything. And a lot of the reasons that the Europeans, besides a warmer winter, had enough gas is how much industrial use was cut back, which means less stuff. And so in a way, like in the U.S., because we make so much of our own natural gas, we have it in such abundance, there's a fair amount of security in moving a chemical plant here if you can get it permitted. You know, like if it's already on the ground, expand capacity or what have you. But that could perhaps in the long run be good for us. But it also, you know, at this point, if you shut that down, you got to wait for the other one to open. And guess what? The Europeans are bidding against the stuff we were producing. So <laughs> crazy. Yeah. So it just it's a hot mess. Right. I think I think that the, <laughs> if you want to summarize this episode, like <laughs> the hot mess we have more. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And again, you know, and something else that we haven't touched on heavily yet is just the whole the shipping industry in itself, again, got flipped upside down and, you know, different routes got, you know, ha had to be made and bottlenecks, you know, at ports and all the rest of it. You know, again, it doesn't just happen. Then the next day when the congestion's gone, it's like I-10 where an hour later, everything's back to normal. Like this stuff has long lasting effects. And so can you talk a little bit about on the, on the shipping side too? And then even regulations and I mean, all, there's a whole bucket of stuff. Yeah. I mean, so on the freight, so ocean ferrying vessels, the International Maritime Organization or IMO, there's been a couple of things that have really disrupted the market. So first you had you know, vessels where it was, like you said, a frenzy for container ships because all of a sudden everybody at their home office buys office furniture and, <laughs> yeah. you know, a Peloton and all that. And so all the traditional sea routes are disrupted because the Chinese and some of these other major manufacturing countries are trying to get all their stuff to the U.S. and Europe while they're spending all this money. Yeah. So then you're leaving shipping containers in weird places and you've got the pandemic itself where boats are being held in quarantine. You're just all kinds of crazy. But the International Maritime Organization, they had IMO 2020, which requires ultra low sulfur diesel or scrubbers, basically. So you limit emissions, which good, right? Like there were some really nasty bunker fuels out there. Yeah. But let's say you got a vessel, a boat that's like 15 years old and its service life is 20 years old. And somebody says, look, you can either, you can add these scrubbers because it's hard to get ultra low sulfur diesel isn't everywhere, mm -hmm. right? So you might go to a port to refuel and if they don't have it, what do you do? So like the scrubbers were a clear solution or you have to shift fuels or whatever. That requires capital investment, right? which everybody else needs it at the same time because the regulation kicks in at the same time. Or you could say, you know what? Forget about it. This boat's only got five years left. I'm not putting that kind of money into something that's almost had a run. Like yeah. steel's expensive enough, send it to scrap. Yeah. And that reduces supply. So fast forward to IMO 2023, which is supposed to help evaluate the carbon intensity of vessels. And it starts out with basically you've got to review the energy intensity and sort of you get a rating, but then you have to have a plan on how to reduce your emissions. Mm -hmm. And some of the most obvious things you could do, one is slow steam. So it's kind of like driving 55. It's supposed to be the most fuel efficient, mm. you know, speed for an engine. Okay. If you go to half speed, you'll burn less fuel. So you'll be more efficient and do better on the scorecard. Right. True. It also means you need double the number of vessels to carry the same amount of material because so much of it's sitting on the water for so much longer, right? Right. So those kinds of things, I mean, basically, if you look at all the shipping stuff, I follow a bunch of people on Twitter and yeah. this has become a, a pastime of AES. <laughs> and what you see is a lot of shipping people are like, 
we feel pretty good about where we're at, you know? Yeah. Because there's not a lot of new vessels being built because they don't know what the next, there are these goals of lowering CO2 emissions to a certain level, but it no propulsion system has been determined right. that would be able to do that. And so why would I buy a vessel, build a new vessel right now? If I don't know, it, it could be illegal in 10 years, or I might have to put millions into it to make it legal again. Yeah. So you say, well, I'll wait. Now, granted, there's a bunch of container ships coming online after this huge rush of shipping, and now con you know container shipping's way down. But because they saw it first, the bulker ships that carry our Bayride ore and that sort of thing, none of those have been built because the shipyards are tied up. So even if you wanted to build a new one that was more compliant and that sort of thing, yeah. you got to wait a couple of years before you get a slip. So IMO is wreaking a lot of havoc. You know, if you look at the ports and that sort of thing, it's interesting because California, we're talking California so tied up, California so tied up. A lot of people have given up on California. So a lot of the East Coast ports are now like you hear more about their congestion there, but they're not dealing with all the crazy regulations on trucking where, you know, in a few years, you know, zero emissions vehicles will be required. You know, once again, technology that really hasn't been established for long haul routes and all that. But yeah, so people are moving around. And then I'm sure this one made the news. Let's move to rail. I'm sure a lot of people heard about this. You know, we came really close to a rail strike like. Congress had intervened, and everybody talked about how devastating it would be for the economy. I mean, you remember this, right, Justin? Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, it was – there was definitely some, like, I wouldn't say emergency meetings, but it was like, hey, this is something we, we need to discuss and plan for. Because, yeah, all of a sudden it was, you know, in a short period of time, these rail strikes that came up. Because, I again, I've made it the joke is America doesn't run on donuts. It runs on rail. Yeah. Because literally everything depends on rail. And so it could have, you know – drastically impacted our ability to just transport goods, you know, from one coast to the other, from the port in. But yeah, so it was definitely a little bit of an intense discussion there for a minute. And and we had to get out in front of it. I mean, I remember talking to customers and saying, hey, you know, we want to assure you we're getting on top of this stuff. We're, we're well ahead of this. We've got plenty of product on the ground. However, you know, we'll continue to, you know, inform you as things evolve. But just in case you haven't seen all over the news yet, there's this rail strike that might be happening. And if it does, just bear with us. But we are getting ahead of it. So, yeah, it's like you got to get on top of these things. And it can it can dramatically – I mean, it, it wouldn't have just been drilling fluids, right? Like they wouldn't have said, oh, yeah. the rail strike and now we can't get barite. It would have been like, oh, the rail strike, now we literally Our have economy to sit shut here. down. Exactly, right? Like the yeah. whole country would have just been – so. Well, and then look, it was like an 11th hour thing. Congress intervened. but yeah. And this, this happened a couple of times, right? Like it was extended and all that. A couple of things to point out, you know, one is you don't have to have the strike, but like it's about a week before a strike is planned, they start shutting down like hazmat stops moving. Mm. Like certain categories of products yeah. just are isolated for safety reasons. And that's that. Right. But the other thing is, if you think about it, if people are ready to strike, they're probably not very happy. <laughs> if it's right to that point, yeah. So it might not be going that well in the first place. <laughs> yeah. And imagine you're ready to strike, and then Congress comes in and tells you you can't, yeah, without directly resolving your grievances. And if you look at any railroads earnings reports, they talk about all these metrics because it became such a huge mess during the pandemic. Yeah. But they're running extra long rail. They they didn't hire enough people. They've lost a lot of people through attrition. People retiring. I think it's been brutal out there. So you'll see some like higher end goods have just moved to trucking 
right. which is great because we need those trucks too. But rail, because of its reliability issues and other concerns, we live right by railroad tracks. Uh, and the number of times there, you know, you can't get through because a train has stopped for some unknown period of time. <laughs> it's frustrating to everybody in the neighborhood. I would say, like, it sounds like things are getting better. Unfortunately, it sounds like this stuff that happened in Ohio has mm, yeah. led to some concessions already. You know, I was reading today, they were trying to go down to one person operating a train instead of two. And, you know, the engineers were saying, look, you need two people to, one needs to watch the cars, one needs to watch the tracks. Like, there's a lot to this and you're asking too much of one person. Well, it sounds like a good task for Chet GPT. Yeah, something like that. <laughs> Sorry, I had to throw that in there. Uh, it's uh, taking people's jobs, you know? I mean, it might take one train person's job. I don't well, know. I, I mean, maybe we should do an episode about that. But I started using ChatGPT just as like when someone asks a technical question. Yeah. And it very confidently will tell you an answer. Yeah. But it's from whatever it can find on the internet. <laughs> and I'm just going to say sometimes, like, there are times I'm like, that was pretty good. And other times it's like, ooh. I think my job's still safe. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> was that with ChatGPT4? Because apparently that one takes way more data points. You've played yeah. with number four? Yeah. Okay, I haven't yeah. yet, but... No, it, it does some good stuff. Like, I think even on the research front, you know, it's interesting to search, but you have to know. It's like looking through technical paper libraries. Right. Like, there is hot garbage that is published as reliable data because, yeah. you know, they don't put a control in or whatever, like... You have to have somebody tell you, read this paper, don't read this one, or don't believe this, but read it. Right. And, and those kinds of things. And this stuff doesn't know the difference. Yeah. And so anyways. No, that's, and last, but I know we're getting off on a tangent yeah. here, but real quick, I wanted to add to that. One thing that's that you can use it for that's a, a lot less risky, if you will, is constructing an email. So mm -hmm. I, for instance, so, you know, perfect example, this morning I get an email from someone, hey, so-and-so, we'd like for you to bid on this subject journaling campaign. Oh, cool. Great. You know, and I've written responses to about a trillion emails over my career and I had ChatGPT open for something else. I was like, I wonder how ChatGPT would respond thanking someone for the RFP. And so <laughs> I put the inputs in there and it actually constructed the most like beautiful response to an email and actually had things in there that I was like, oh, actually I can use that in the email. Yeah. And so it actually like made my email that I thought was fairly good, like jam up. So yeah. anyway, there is no, there use tools. cases for it. Yeah. I, I might know somebody who had assistance <laughs> writing his own wedding vows using <laughs> yeah. it, which I, I don't know what that speaks about his, his marriage. But anyways. Uh, that's funny. Um, anyway. Let, yeah. I, yeah. Sorry. We I went, went off, off the rails, <laughs> could you say? <laughs> boom, boom. See what I did there? All yeah, right. did. Last but not mm -hmm. least, everyone's dealing with this challenge is just trucking. Yeah. <laughs> Let's, I mean, what do you think about this situation? Well, what's fascinating is... You have to ask somebody who's in this business when they say, oh, we have 18 trucks, like how many drivers? And they're like three. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, wait, um, that's, yeah. But this has been brutal. There's a few different ways, like, you know, there's a lot of independent owner operators out there and that sort of thing. They've been crushed by certain kinds of legislation. One of the big things was, you remember when there was that big run up in fuel prices a while ago? Mm -hmm. Well, what happens is if you're an independent owner operator, you need to get paid fairly quickly a lot of the terms with the people you're working for is like 60 days. So you do a job, you're waiting on a check, and now you've got to buy thousands of gallons of diesel for all the runs you do between now and then at record high prices. Now, granted, you will be paid eventually, but you don't have a line of credit like a big company yeah. to get you know take out an IOU to cover those costs. And so some of these folks were just getting crushed between regulations and, you know, it wasn't, Increase in fuel prices matter, but it was the, even the volatility was hurting them. 
Yeah. You know, that can go both ways. It can be beneficial when prices go down, but those extremes were, were devastating. And then we simply just know that it's very hard to get qualified truck drivers who can be safe and yeah. meet all the demands of the oil field. And, you know, like, it doesn't bear repeating. We just, we know it's a problem. And I think it's probably one of the more relatable. Yeah. I can tell you about whatever's going on in Ukraine, but I think almost everybody working in the oil patch can tell you how hard it is to get a truck. Yeah. You know? No, that's true. And I just wonder, and again, I don't know if there's data out there to show any of this, but I'd be curious to see like how many truck drivers were directly employed to service, call it upstream oil and gas pre-pandemic versus now. Because activity levels arguably were, I think rig count was, I mean, close to it, closer or higher than it was today. It'd just be interesting to kind of see the shift in sort of drivers and trucks in the capacity at which is available to us because it's, I would imagine it continuously goes down because less and less people want to drive truck when they can make, you know, they can make decent amount of money in other industries and then have a side hustle on their phone to make up the difference. You know what I mean? Like it's. um, Yeah. Well, I mean, the thing is, I think for look at like the Permian struggles all the time, right? Yeah. So there's an element of that where it's like, do those folks just drive somewhere else when that dries up? Let's say to, you know, run loads in Chicago or something like, do they do that or do they lay low for a while? Like, what does that look like? Because it's always hard to get them there. Like in some of the more urban centers, like they got to go find something else to do or go somewhere else because, you know, you can see even when you look at like the St. Louis Federal Reserve, like trucking index, it's still very, very high relative to where it was. Yeah. But, you know, you can freight waves. If anybody follows freight waves, they have these, they go like, you know, tender rejection rates, which is basically how many times when somebody says, hey, I need a truck driver, the number of times a truck driver says no, which would imply they have a choice. Right. Right. So if they're rejecting at a very high level, that means that demand is high. Right. But they'll break it down. You know, they have graphics where it'll show you like, you know, the most profitable run is between like Detroit and Milwaukee or whatever. Oh, wow. But like they're like Northeast is terrible right now. And so you can sort of see those shifts and everything and how they're either they're related to industry or they're more likely related to like consumer goods or whatever it is. Yeah. Fascinating. But the thing is like, the Permian's always red, you know, like it doesn't, we don't get those like seasonal explanations. It, it doesn't seem like even when, even when things are bad, like it still seems like it's tough to get a truck driver sometimes, Yeah, you know? Yeah. So it may be that that just is what it is because it's a remote area and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. But we see this in the Northeast too, right? Like, yeah. Yeah. No, it's it, so. it, And at the end of the day, it's just, it all counts towards just, the cost of doing business for us, right? And it's, you know, on the trucking side, it's when truckers have options and the demand's Mm -hmm. high, just again, fundamentals of economics, it's like the price is going to go high when the demand's high because you've got the leverage. And so, and while it might not look much on like, all of this compounding together is enough to drastically move the needle. Not yes. single one is enough to like blow it out of the water, some more than others. But when you're de- like, it's one thing to deal with one of these things at any point in time throughout a cycle. But when all of this happens all at once, it's just like it drastically impacts things for a longer duration of time because then you're kind of, it's like a tug of war struggling. Again, everyone's competing for goods and services and energy and materials. And so again, it's a hot mess, but, and again, this has been a lot of information, you know, I think it'd be cool if, you know, for us to die. And we didn't even talk about the bear market, which this, 
which it all is subject to a lot of these challenges, but it, it's its own beast in itself, right? Yeah. Which could be a whole nother topic. Well, we're publishing a paper about the Bayright market to be presented next week. I don't Boom. know when this episode's coming out, but... Right. It would have been... April yeah, 4th this... and 5th. So yeah, this one may come out quite a bit later, but sure. that paper will be available on the AAD website Perfect. for anyone to read. And you know what? I tried to keep it to like five or six pages, but you could probably write a book on what a mess it is. It's Bayright is a whole other animal on its own. Right. And, you know, another one where we have to look around and say, man, even just this... One product, I can tell you <laughs> a story, and it's more complicated than the tubular goods, in my opinion. Sure. Yeah. No, and so again, the whole point of this is not to say, ah, oh, we're you know throwing up our hands, we're running out of product, but just to demonstrate the complexity of what we're working with. And fortunately, we have a huge team with a lot of talented individuals who work tirelessly to stay in front of this. And there's not one person dealing with all of this, right? We have a team no. of people that are dedicated to certain pieces of this and everything else. But again, it's a testament to who we are and why we have such a strong competitive advantage because we can stay on top of this. We can keep costs low. We can service a customer. We can, you know, always have supply ready, to, you know, on the ground, ready to go. And again, it's just, it's a great piece to be a part of. And so I think too, to help the listeners, maybe we can put the AED link in the show notes. So that way, if you're listening to this and you're curious about the Bearite, piece, you know, it's on the AED website, but in the show notes, we'll try and maybe put the link to the paper. That way it's easy to access if you're on your phone or something like that. And yeah, just, you know, again, I think education is critical, especially right now, the way commodity prices are and just the uncertainty moving forward. But we can promise you, you're always going to have AES product on the ground, ready to go. Yeah. I mean, much credit. I think in the kind of the middle of some of this, you know, we realized that we weren't doing as much R&D because we were just trying to make sure our products met the same quality spec. Right. Uh, from different providers and from, you know, a lot of creativity on the procurement side. And, you know, they did a great job, but we ended up hiring another chemist just because we were so bowed up, <laughs> making sure we keep all, and, and we did. But yeah. every day you thought you had something fixed. And if you ask any of our products people, it was something that you totally didn't see. You got blindsided by, yeah you know, even paper bags. I think our one of our paper bag suppliers, it was like, at the beginning of the week, they said it was like a 14-week lead time. And then two days later, they told us it was like a 54-week lead time. <laughs> and I was like, wait, what happened? It was just nuts. Yeah. So, yeah. But there's a lot of amazing things our people do behind the scenes that you never get to see at the rig site. Yeah. But we're very fortunate to have such a great team. And I think, you know, as much as people get anxious about all this, like, the whole industry is dealing with this, okay? I mean, yeah. if your mud company isn't talking to you about it, it doesn't mean it's not their problem too. I believe in our team, you know, more than anybody is capable to address these things as they come up and we're going to be creative and we're not going to compromise on quality, but we're going to be very clear. And, you know, the best thing you can do is communicate uh, with it. your vendors, with your customers, all that kind of thing. Perfect. So. And speaking of communication, again, we'd really appreciate if you could communicate this podcast episode to all your friends, families, Enemies, if you want to enlighten them with some good drilling fluid supply chain conversation. If you have any questions, thoughts, or even ideas for a show, hit us up. We recently had a gentleman reach out on LinkedIn with a great question. I think we released it last episode talking about dewatering. So again, thank you for that. If you want to reach us via email, you can reach us at the Flowline Podcast at AESfluids.com. Make sure you leave a review as well. I know we've got a lot more listeners than we do reviews. So if you have a minute, if you're at your desk or 
you got a couple minutes break, just leave a review. That'd be awesome. And again, appreciate all the support. Make sure you follow AES Fluids on LinkedIn. Tons of content and good information being provided on that, as long as the tech tips that we have on YouTube. Matt and his team do a great job demonstrating a lot of the different tests and really just, you know, put a good graphic and visualization to a lot of the stuff that we talk about here. But anyway, with that being said, everyone enjoy baseball seasons kicking off here. I know Matt's just fired up. He's vibrating with excitement. He can barely stand it. I'm happy for him and the rest of the Houston fans. With that said, take care, everyone. We'll talk to you next time. Take care. Thanks for listening. Please tune in next week for another exciting episode of The Flow Line. And remember, may your returns always be full and your trips always smooth. Views expressed in this program belong to participants and not their employees. The program is for informational purposes only and cannot take the place of seeking professional advice. Copyright AES Drilling Fluids.